Well, we are working our way through Nehemiah. And uh, this summer, we picked a, a few of the smaller Old Testament books to sort of get those under our belt um, because you guys wanted to learn some of the Old Testament books. So that's why we, we did that. So Matthias taught through Ezra, a fantastic book. And now Nehemiah, the book on leadership. Well, you know, not all the Bible is the word of God, but not all the Bible is equally as important as other parts. So I think the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is probably more important than Genesis 5, which is just the genealogy, right? Um, and so here, again, we're teaching through Nehemiah, but we teach right through it. So that, you know, that's the, the thing is that when you hit genealogies and you hit things like we're tonight, these lists of names, it again lets us know the historicity of the Bible. The Bible is a historical document. And if it was just a bunch of myths and stuff, they wouldn't give you pages and pages and pages and pages of names that can be verified or unverified. And there was a season those names were incredibly important, especially up to the time of the Messiah. And especially at this time, who can be a priest and who can be a Levite? Who's from the, the tribe of Aaron, uh, the tribe of the Levites? Are they truly? And that was important to have a temple again, as they did uh, during the time of Christ. But now 70 AD, Titus came up from Rome, destroyed Jerusalem. All of these records are now gone. And remember Ezra and then also Nehemiah, they took the records. There were some guys claiming to be Levites, some guys claiming to be a priest of the tribe of Aaron. And the genealogies proved it out that they weren't. They said, hey, you can't serve here um, because you're not there. So today that could not be done. So the Antichrist, it's weird when you go to Israel because the Jews will tell you exactly what they would do and accepting the, 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 the Messiah if he were to come. And they perfectly described the Antichrist. And uh, it just puts chills right up on the back of your neck uh, because they fully believe the Messiah will bring them back into the temple, which we know that's exactly what the Antichrist is going to do. Uh, in the middle of the tribulation period, he sets upon the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies and claims himself to be God. And at that point, the Jews' eyes are open and they reject him. And, but um, anyway, uh, the stage is being set now. And of course, it can't be a legitimate temple with legitimate Levites and sons of Aaron because those genealogies have been destroyed. But to this point, especially uh, Jesus proving his lineage of the tribe of Judah to be the Messiah of the tribe of Judah, that was very important. But after the Messiah, it's really not important anymore. Um, for the prophecies to be fulfilled. So we are, we've been in Nehemiah. The walls got built in 52 days. Amazing. The people sat saying, read us the Bible. We want to know the scriptures. And, and they kept reading them hours a day, six hours a day reading. And then eventually they hit a pattern where they would read the Bible for three, day, or three hours a day, and then they would pray and repent. Uh, and worship God for three hours a day. Six hours of worship every single day. Um, I don't know. It depends on where you're at with the Lord yourself, whether that sounds horrible or wonderful. Um, 
where I'm at right now, that sounds wonderful. I'd love to get up every morning, take my coffee, you know, watch a little news, and then go out and all this crowds of passionate people just hungering to hear the Bible read for three hours and then sit around and discuss it with each other and pray about it and worship and cry and repent. And, and oh man, that, that just sounds heavenly to me. Um, but there's times in my life when it's like, oh man, 30 minutes is too much, um, you know, and, I, I, you know, it, hopefully we, we'll all get to that place where we're passionate and stay passionate for the Lord. But they're in the midst of the revival, and now they're reaping their rewards of revival. As Chuck Smith used to always say, they're under the spout where the blessings flow out. That's where you want to live, right under God's spout where the blessings flow out. And that's where they were. And so they need to get down to some practical business before they dedicate the temple. We'll see at the end of chapter 12 here. So practically, they have the city with walls, but nobody wanting to live in the city. So at this point, the the city has been being used as a garbage dump. Uh, It's been in horrible conditions uh, for almost, you know, well over 100 years, probably close to 200 years. It's just been... uh, Nothing. It's just been a trashed runs, if you would. Now they got the walls, but that's it. They don't really have but a few buildings inside. Um, it, it seems like they have a swap meet that's going on inside the gates on a regular basis. Uh, they, the Temple Mount area isn't even usable. They're all way over by the refuse gate is where the, there's a, a flat area. It seems like that's all they're using, and that's where the people have been worshiping and hearing the word and, and talking it all, not in the Temple Mount area. It doesn't even seem like it's usable. And, um, and so they're, they're saying, hey, it's not a great place to live right now, but um, we need people that w- would do it. And uh, there weren't enough people willing to do it, so they had to cast lots in verse 1. Now all the leaders of the people dwelt at Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten. As we get to the end, we're going to see it's about 50,000 people in this lottery system. And um, one out of ten, about 5,000 people would eventually win the lottery in a native way. It's like, I don't want to win the lottery. I don't want to live inside Jerusalem. I want to go back to my farm and live in the country and enjoy living out on the farm. But uh, one out of 10, were to have to, they had to dwell in Jerusalem in the holy city. Isn't that crazy? The holy city, nobody wants to live there. And uh, nine-tenths would, could go back and dwell in any cities or towns or, uh, you know, live in the country. And... Um, And so in verse 2, though, it says there were a group of people that volunteered, and the people blessed all the men who willingly offered themselves to dwell at Jerusalem. So there were a group of men, interesting, they were the leaders from each of the tribes. A lot of them were leaders of Benjamin and Judah who didn't want to live there either. They just knew that they needed leadership if the city was to succeed. And they said, I don't want to do this, but I must do this to be a responsible leader. 
and to not just have a bunch of people meandering around in the city and nothing really progressing or moving forward. We need to get there to make sure the water systems, the sewage systems, um, the building structures, they need leadership to organize this thing and to get it built up and growing. And so they realized it was a great sacrifice. These men who had the money, had the prestige, but are having to live in a difficult situation. We had a meeting on Monday night with a group of guys that, uh, and it was neat, Dennis shared that, how, man, that he just came to a place in his life in maturity where God just said, step up and do it. And uh, he's been doing it for decades now, but uh, just consistently. Um, And there were some guys before him that he followed in their footsteps who just were tough, dudes that were just consistent in setting up chairs and tearing down and being there to to do the work of the ministry in very practical terms. So all the people blessed those people that were willingly giving themselves to be uh, these men in Jerusalem. And of course, their whole families would be with them as well. They had a unique pioneering spirit. They had an ability to endure the hardship, the discomfort to accomplish a greater work for God's kingdom. Well, a lot of names here, and I would hate to read it all and spoil the fun for you to do it on your own. So it'd be like unwrapping Christmas presents for you. So I I won't do that. But um, we we start there in verse 3, and it's breaking down all the heads of the providence who dwell in Jerusalem. Now, in the cities of Judah and, and Benjamin. So remember when Joshua came into the promised land, everybody got sections. Well, the section where Judah, the tribe of Judah and Benjamin was, was in the Jerusalem area and around, all the way extended to Bethlehem, of course, the city of David. And, uh, and outside, and again, if you get a map, you can see that district, but it wasn't a huge district, but they did have uh, a very specialized district with a couple of large cities, that being Jerusalem and also Bethlehem at the time, and other cities around. So it was a very influential area they got. And of course, once David became king, he had known all along that that's the place where God had chosen to put his temple and to put his name in Jerusalem. And so he, he says these, these guys of this tribe, uh, everybody dwelt in their own possession. So each of the people in the tribes, each of the family heads in the tribe of Judah and Benjamin would all get a plot of land within the area uh, of those two tribes. And so these are ancient possessions that they had. Um, and the priests and the Levites and the Nethanim are descendants of Solomon's servants. So we'll talk about that Nethanim in just a little bit. But So when you study through the Bible, the priest, the tribe of Levi actually wasn't counted as a tribe. If you tra- count them as a tribe, there's actually 13 tribes of Israel. And of course, 13 is, is a number of triumph. It's a great number. Uh, Joshua went 13 times around Jericho when it fell down. Um, so I thought 13 was a lucky number. It is for Satan. Um, but they, they counted, they didn't count the Levites as a tribe because that was the Lord's people. 
So what they did is outside the cities, the priests who had a ministry in the various cities, they got the space on the outside of the city walls for their gardens and their chickens and their sheep and their goats. So they had milk and and vegetables and fruit trees and so forth. And then, of course, there was a number of cities of refuge. That's a whole other story. I don't want to go into that. But um, And so he's saying that the, the priests were sprinkled in and amongst all the various villages around as it used to be in the olden days when things were set in order correctly. So now, remember, Zerubbabel brought back the group from Babylon back to Israel. They had been kicked out for 70 years plus. But now things are starting to slowly take shape with the Levites again. So it appears that even though they've been back, remember Ezra came back, and he came back with a group of Levites and priests, that nobody was operating as a Levite or priest. Ezra got back, they built the temple, and they still weren't. So those who were Levites and priests were pretty much just farmers and regular uh, merchants. They weren't, they weren't operating uh, in a spiritual realm whatsoever. But now, in this revival, of after the walls are being built, things are starting to take shape again, as they had done years and years in the olden days, before Babylon and before that, when things in the country were healthy. And so the way God's order is supposed to work, it's beginning to slowly happen that way. In verse 4, in Jerusalem dwelt some of the children of Judah and the children of Benjamin. Uh, And then he gives a list of the children of Judah. And predominantly, a guy uh, at this time, who was sort of a, a mainstay of the tribe of Judah, was Perez. And so uh, he came up from Mexico. And, um, but uh, this house of Perez was sort of a, a prestigious house uh, of Judah at this time. And it names uh, 468 of them, uh, all valiant men men trained in war. So um, this, is, this is sort of a, a point of, of saying, wow, um, we, we didn't just have anybody living in Jerusalem, but we had some of the most princely of the princely, some of the greatest, richest, most powerful people who came and moved in Jerusalem. So that, that really had to help, right? I mean, that really had to, to help um, causing people to value Jerusalem, which they're clearly not at this time. It's, it's, it's not a place you want to live, but yet these, these well-to-do, well-known people, mighty men of valor are moving in there. And then in verse 7 through 9, you have the sons of Benjamin, about 928 of them, so almost twice as many, uh, that of Judah. That's substantial. And then of the various priests, there, I'm not going to go into it tonight, but there is three different breakups of Aaron's sons. And each of the sons had a different job in moving the tabernacle in particular. And then later, who would be actually in the temple, those that would just be the Kohathites of, and, and the, that of the, the one son Kohath, they did went into the temple. They were the high priesthood. And then you had Merari and so, and, and so forth. And, and they all had their different jobs outside the temple area. 
And so some were heads of the father's house, it says in verse 13. Verse 12 tells us some did the work of the house. Um, and when you add it all up, it's about a 1,190 of the priests, of the actual sons of, of Aaron. And then of the tribe of Levi, not those who were sons of Aaron, there was about another 284 of them that lived in the holy city. And then in verse 19, you had gatekeepers, people who were just doing the job of, of administrating, cleaning, setting up, tearing down, organizing. If you look at the Jewish calendar, there were always feasts getting ready to happen or just happening. And there's a lot of things that would have to be turned over and changed for each of the different festivals. And uh, so they were just employees, if you would, uh, who were historically their parents. It's sort of a, a family uh, job that were able to do this. And, and so they're back there now doing the administrative work, helping out the, the Levites and the priest. And, uh, and so basically what we have up to this point is a list of all the heads of the providence who lived in Jerusalem. An extensive list, including tribal leaders of Judah and Benjamin, military men, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, civil leaders, royal servants, and uh, all these notable men and their families took the lead by choosing to settle in Jerusalem, setting a good example for all of God's people. And then outside of that, you had people that weren't living directly in Jerusalem, but right outside of Jerusalem, other priests and Levites. So it, it, it appears that they probably lived right outside of Jerusalem, but still came into the city each day to work and to minister, even though they sort of had a house in the suburbs, so to speak. And uh, it says in verse 21, now the Nethanim dwelt at Ophel, and, and it gives the, the names of these guys. Now, the Nethanim is, is sort of a new name, given referring back to the Gibeonites. Do you guys remember the Gibeonites? Joshua chapter 9. Joshua, whether, rather than inquiring of the Lord, just made the decision. You had this group of people that said, oh, we traveled from another country way far away. And, uh, and look at our food, it's all molded. And, and look, at we're all dusty. But they were really just on the other side of the hill. And they talked Joshua into making a covenant with the Gibeonite people who were, they lied to them, saying, well, we live a long, long way outside the promised land. Uh, we want to make a covenant that we always have favor with each other. And Joshua made the covenant, made the vow. We just talked about this, didn't we? Where the children of Israel made a vow, made a covenant. And Jesus said, don't do it. But if you do it, boy, you got to make your yes, yes, and your no. No, you can't get out of it. And so when Joshua knew he was tricked, God said, you've got to keep your vow. And Joshua said, okay, I'm going to put a little uh, footnote on our relationship. From now on, you're our servants to the priest. You go cut all the wood up, chop the wood up, carry the wood for them to burn the sacrifices and also bring the water. And the Gibbonites are like, okay. Well, what ended up happening is these Gentiles ended up being like a part of the priesthood. 
The area Ophel is another name for the city where David lived. It was the ancient name, which became where David put the palace. Today, when we go to Israel, we go to the southern steps. And right there in that area and right below is where David had his house, which is the area of Ophel, overlooking the Kidron Valley and then looking at the Mount of Olives. It was a very prestigious place. Of course, at this time, all of Jerusalem is just a broken down runs. It's not the place of the palace, right? It's just a place where there's a pile of rocks. But these Gibeonites knew exactly what they were doing. They went, they got a, a location near the temple so they didn't have to travel as far. But they also took over the ancient site of David's palace. Look at these guys. Envious position they ended up in. Their whole job was to be where every Jew wanted to be in the temple. David said, if I had a second choice from being king, actually it's my first choice, rather than being king, I would like God to make me a bird and I could just build a nest and live right there in the temple. And so these Gibeonites really were quite an interesting group of people who end up living in a very prestigious area and with an envious job. Well, in verse 22, now the overseers of the Levites of Jerusalem, and he gives the name of who they are, Uzi and so forth, and the singers in charge of the service of the house of God. Now, if you study back in the law, you won't find Moses in the law making singers for the temple or the tabernacle. This was something David did. David instituted a whole nether priesthood, if you would. It wasn't of a certain people or a certain tribe. It was just anybody who wanted to join the band, join the orchestra, join the choir. And then he had certain people that became professionals at that. You might remember in the Psalms, there's 150 of them, 75 of them David wrote, but the other half of them were written by Asaph, who was just the choir director for David. And from Asaph, his children and his family members end up being this very musical group of people. And so if you would, it's not just the glory of the tabernacle. It's not just the glory of the temple that Solomon built, but it's the glory that goes back to the time of King David when the tabernacle was there. But even though the temple wasn't built when David was alive, he had put together this elaborate orchestra and choir and it hasn't been around for hundreds of years, but it's coming back. So things aren't just coming back in a limping way. They're coming back to their fullness of the glory. This is what it's saying. Now, you say, well, who, who paid for the singers? We know the tithes are for the priests and stuff. Well, interesting enough, king... <laughs> The Medo-Persian Empire, Artaxerxes, evidently via Nehemiah, or maybe Nehemiah had the choir come to Zusha and sing. I don't know. 
But the king took it on as one of his charities. Look there at verse 23. For it was the king's command concerning them that certain portions should be for the singers, a quota day by day. So, you know, people today who are wealthy, they support the arts, right? <laughs> and they'll support the city orchestra or, or, or some other area of the arts. And that's a pretty prestigious thing to do. You get special banquets and whatever. So the king evidently had a nonprofit organization. And uh, part of, of, of that nonprofit organization was supporting the arts. And in various regions, I guess, maybe of the world, since he was the world conqueror of that time. But in particular, he supported the arts of Jerusalem. Interesting, isn't it? And he got one of the guys from his nonprofit organization to live there in Jerusalem to make, to oversee this for the king. And he gives the guy's name there in verse 24. And he says he was the king's deputy and all the matters concerning the people. So he made sure all of these singers uh, were supported and that their music interests continued to grow and grow. Now, of course, those living in Judah was substantial so you have to have a place where you can have fruit and vegetables and milk and eggs and so forth. So these wealthy people that lived in Judah also had gardens, if you would, or ranches or farms outside of Jerusalem to make sure that they had a continual flow of food and vegetables and so forth while living in Jerusalem. So that was just part of living in a big city is you still had to have uh, agriculture uh, shipped to you in order to survive unless you were to buy it. And that probably would be uh, even more expensive than the rich people could handle. They had to produce their own. And then verse 31 there to verse 36, the children of Benjamin uh, list them and some of the Judean divisions of the Levites were in Benjamin. So um, at this particular time, um, when it came to the Levites, and you had some living in the area of Benjamin and some in the area of Judah, and uh, they were operating as one unit. The tribe of Benjamin and Judah were really not two separate groups. They really operated as one group. Well, we come now to chapter 12. And here, these are the priests and the Levites who came up with Zerubbabel, so now he, he's saying, let's recognize not only those who were the pioneers who came with Zerubbabel. Remember that first came, a group that came with Zerubbabel? What did they come when they came back to Israel? It was a harsh land full of pirates, okay? It was a dangerous place. It was a place where there was nothing going. It was a destroyed land. Wow. These people, a lot of them were professional, wealthy people, and they literally made the choice to move to a very harsh third world environment, especially coming from Babylon, the most modern uh, country in the world. And so if you would, this is sort of be like for us, a list of the people who were on the Mayflower. 
You know what? I, I think I've met at least a million people who their relatives came off the Mayflower. It, it's amazing how everybody likes that. I grew up in, in Visalia, and there's uh, several Indians that also went to school with us. And they're like, no, my, my parents were on the Mayflower. We were shooting at them. Um, so we always had a fun time with that. But this is what they're saying is, hey, these, some of these guys that it, it's in their blood, their great-grandparents were pioneers and they came to this harsh land and living in hardship and danger and discomfort. And now we proudly step up and give honor to our lineage by ourselves living in Jerusalem in a difficult place. And these are the heads of the priests and the, and the brethren in the days of Joshua. So he's going back talking about uh, the priests and, and some of the, the Levites who also came with that first group with Zerubbabel. And then there's a list of other groups of Levites at various times that came with Ezra and afterwards. Uh, and you might remember that as we looked at the end of Ezra, which was 60 years apart between Zerubbabel and Ezra. And then another, a few decades before Nehemiah came to build the wall and Jehoiakim might remember his name. Well, then we come to verse 22. And now we have, during the reign of Darius the Persian, uh, a record that was kept of the Levites and the priests who had been heads of their father's houses in those days. And then it's going to keep going. It's going to say, and these are the sons of Levi, of the heads of the fathers and houses in those days. And then it mentions there that they are, during those days, uh, during the time of Ezra, they started needing gatekeepers in particular to watch, to guard the storerooms of the gates. Remember what the storerooms? That was where the extra tithes and offerings came. It was God's desire that there would be a buildup of finances. So when there was a hard time in the land and not as much tithe came in, the Levites wouldn't have to leave. They wouldn't have to say, hey, we've got to lay off half of you priests and half of you Levites got to go find a job somewhere. You can't serve here in the temple because there's not enough tithe coming in. So God wanted a storehouse full of money so when they hit lean times, they would still be supported. So they needed a, somebody to guard the vault, so to speak, which is a good thing. And then he also says, now these are the guys that were around all the way up to the present day. Uh, while Nehemiah was governor and Ezra was priest. And so now we're sort of up to present time. So in verse 27, now we're at present time. Now, that's what it says, verse 27. Now, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought out the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, both the thanksgiving and singing with cymbals and stringed instruments and harps. So it sounds like they didn't really want to advertise it because they had so many enemies in the area. They were going to do a dedication. They wanted everybody there, but they just said, go out and make sure that every priest, every Levite in all of the country of Israel know to come. And as we're going to see here in a minute, they had to come a few days earlier to practice because this ended up being a very elaborate choreographed event. And so they, they made sure that happened. 
And again, it would be a dedication with gladness, thanksgiving, singing, cymbals, stringed instruments, harps. It was going to be a big concert, a big event, a very organized and well-structured and quality thing. We want everybody here. In verse 28, the sons of the singers gathered together from the countryside around Jerusalem, from the villages... And he goes on to say, for the singers had built themselves villages all around Jerusalem. So leave it up to the music people. They all build these little musical compounds, these little musical communes, these little musical villages that were kibbutz for musicians. So if you you had a desire to become a musician, you could go and live in one of these musical villages and uh, they would teach you and you would practice and and then uh, you're not too far away from Jerusalem. So when it came time uh, to to come and use your uh, talents, you're right there to be a part of it. And again, they were supported financially by the king, Artaxerxes, to to be able to have these, these artistic communes. And uh, before that could happen, um, again, everybody's there in town. They're practicing. They're rehearsing. The musical people are getting together. Uh, probably some of the people in different villages go to the, the place where all the musicians are living and sleep there for a few days or having a little musical retreat. And, and all the priests now are gathered together, and everybody's a part of this. As they go around, they first purify themselves. But then they purify the people. They're going throughout the city and all around and purifying the people, sprinkling of water. But they're also doing it with the gates. And they're also going around to doing it all the various bricks all around inside and outside probably the city of Jerusalem. I had one of the guys who was a relatively new believer in our church in San Diego who rented a, a place and he's like, Brian, hey, read this right here. I need you to come over and, uh, and, and anoint every door in my house and every window and all the walls. And, and, and I just, you know, I was like, wow, man, that's, I, I'll, you know what, I'll do that. And, uh, and I came and, and I, I did it and I prayed all over his house and he'd be a blessing. And he did, he had a great home fellowship. It was great. But then he, he, he told people about that. And so then I had literally five people calling going, hey, I need you to come to my... And I'm like, okay, I, I need like four full-time staff just to go anoint doors and walls in people's houses. Sorry, um, I should have never done that to begin with. I really opened a Pandora's box there. But uh, I'll be it unto you according to your faith. I've just told people, just do it yourself. I'm with you in spirit. Um, well, in verse 31... So I brought the leaders of Judah on the wall and appointed two large thanksgiving choirs. One went to the right hand on the wall towards the refuse gate. And we'll see in a minute, another group went to the left. Now, I'd just like to to point out here. Remember earlier, Tobias and Ballot, to dishearten the people, they were throwing all these little fiery darts. Do you remember one of them was? If foxes try to jump over the walls that are built so far, their little tiny bodies would knock the whole wall down. Do you guys remember that? Because they were using substandard material. These were not builders. These were just regular people. But now we see how strong the Lord is making this wall. That virtually, 
the entire population of priests and Levites and singers and leaders are going to be standing on top of this wall all the way around. Thousands of people this wall is going to support. So again, you know, if you're thinking like a city the size of, you know, LA or something, you know, um, if you look at the South Coast Plaza Mall, okay, the, the greater mall there, that's about the size of the city of Jerusalem at the time, okay? It, it wasn't huge. The temple itself was about the size of this room that we're in right now, not much bigger, actually a little narrower and just a little bit longer. So uh, again, it, it is, it's pretty astounding when you, you think of how this was going to work out. So after they purified themselves, they had one group of leaders with instruments and singing, and they came up and they walked up under the wall from the steps wherever they were at, and, and they're singing and the instruments are playing. But then after them, on another, I'm picturing like one set of steps going up this way, and then another set of steps maybe a little further down going up the opposite way. And, and these guys now are going up the other way, half of those leaders of Judah. And it goes on to tell us there, with musical instruments of David and the man of God, so some special instruments that were invented by David, uh, they were remade, the designs were there, and they actually had some of those. Uh, so again, the, the glory of the time when David was king. Now Ezra the scribe went before them. So now you got Ezra sort of leading this group of people. So you had the first group of people that, that were being led going one direction. Now Ezra leading another group of priests and Levites and the musicians going another area. And they're all marching along the wall, filling up. And eventually they'll come to their spot and stop and everybody will turn and, and face into the city. Um, and it, it tells us there that Ezra went before them, the fountain gate, the fountain, the front of them, and they went up to the stairs of the city of David on the stairway of the wall beyond the house of David is the water gate eastward. And I gave you a map. I should have given you one again tonight here. So Oshia took half of the leaders to the right with the musical instruments in the hand. Ezra took another group, went to the left, uh, evidently. And then in verse 38, now other Thanksgiving choir went the opposite way. I, Nehemiah, was behind them with half of the people on the wall. So now you're actually having the groups crisscrossing each other. There's on the wall, there's like two lines of people. So as one group is marching that way, another group came up from the opposite way and they're passing each other. Like, you know, you can imagine people with trumpets and they both have trumpets and they're passing each other and singers are all singing different parts and now they're passing each other. And so it looks like there's gonna eventually, they're gonna spread out. But while they're doing this, you know, you really need a heavenly look. I mean, this was for the Lord. So from above, if you would, looking down, uh, sort of like the Olympic, uh, you know, first night of the Olympics, you know, they're pretty orchestrated, pretty amazing how they have all those things going. This is what it would have looked like. 
Everybody in their best of the best uh, garments and all the musicians practice and all the singers together. And you got this great choreograph going as they're coming up on the wall and then on the wall and crisscrossing and passing each other. And then in verse 40, so the two thanksgiving choirs stood in the house of God. Likewise, I, Nehemiah, and half of the rulers with me. And, and so he's sort of re- saying that in verse 40 again. And the singer sang loudly, he says in verse 42, with Jezariah, the director. So they're all singing, but there's, the director is maybe down on the ground, and everybody's spread out looking at him. And, and again, there's not a lot of buildings in Jerusalem at this time. And, and so he, they're able to see him, and he's directing them, and it's very organized, very quality being done. And so on that day, they offered great sacrifices, verse 43. Rejoice, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and the children also rejoiced. I guess a little harder to get them to rejoice, I I don't know. Um, And so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard afar off. So wow, what a day of dedication. You, You know, I've done a few dedications. I had Chuck Smith do both, both of them. I built a smaller building, eventually built a bigger building. Chuck came both times, and it is a great time. But we weren't this organized. Uh, we didn't go knock ourselves out to this degree, mainly because we were exhausted from the building uh, project. But uh, when, when we get our building, okay, we will do this right, right? We will we'll pull out the, the bands and the orchestra and the choirs, and, and we're, we're going to do it upright. Well, verse 44 now. At the same time, some were appointed over the rooms of the storehouse for the offerings, the first fruits, and the tithes. So now um, finances are coming in as people see what they are supporting and why it's important for them to have full-time priests, full-time Levites, full-time singers. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites, who ministered. So now, really, things are coming together as God has said in his scriptures. He wanted those things to come together. Verse 45, and the singers and the gatekeepers kept the charge of their God and the charge of the purification according to the command of David and Solomon, his son. So now they are doing it the way it was done in days of old. Back in the days before the temple, when David was king and tabernacle was there then after the building with solomon is there the glories of god being worshiped in such a quality way was once again happening and in verse 46 for the days of david and asaph of old there were chiefs of the singers songs and praise thanksgiving to god so there wasn't just one choir there were several choirs there wasn't just one Orchestra. There's several different groups of orchestras, the different types of bands and, and different types of music that, uh, that were within the temple. Not just one type. There was, there was some unique groups. And in verse 47, Now in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, all Israel gave the portion for the singers and the gatekeepers a portion of it for each day. And they also consecrated holy things for the Levites. The Levites consecrated them for the children of Aaron. So it started back when Zerubbabel first came back, limping along, and Ezra sort of kicked into a different degree. But now things are really working. And we are really now 
at the end, as we're coming to the end of Nehemiah, really at the end of the historical chronological time of the Old Testament. We have Esther, which is really the final book of the history, but that really is within the time period uh, of this and even before. So what do we learn from these two chapters here tonight? One, I, I think that uh, when we have complete revival, when we are turned to the Bible, when we are hungry for the Word of God as these people were, and then they pray through the Word of God, and God is speaking to them and they're responding to that, there's an amazing revival that can happen. Uh, there's a guy years ago um, who, who uh, was an African who couldn't quite speak English right and he kept talking about the revival they were having. And, uh, and when he finally realized what he was saying, he goes, no, that's what it was. It was a revival. We... we fell back in love with the Bible again. And then we saw the mighty move of God. And, uh, and this is exactly what we see here, isn't it? A revival. They got back to the word and responded to God's voice and awesome. Secondly, God loves it when we sing. I mean, this is sort of something we're seeing here. It's just the, the great joy and celebration and, and God moving mightily within those singers when they have this true heart of worship to him. So I just say to you, make a joyful noise. You can't sing very good, make a joyful noise. It's just as good. Number three, be faithful in your giving, in tithes, and above that, in your offerings. Number four, when we purify and sanctify ourselves unto God in dedication to the great work he has done and he has done through us, he will bring us into a season of great joy. Amen.